You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I would say that uh, there are, as I said before, I think that there were mistakes that were made over the period of the last 10 years. In 1967, Ronald Reagan and Robert Kennedy appeared together simultaneously from different coasts in a television debate. It was about Vietnam and other issues with questions asked by a global panel of students, including Cuba and the USSR. The students, this is the 1960s, were tough on the USA. They were tough critics of Vietnam and other administration policies. Reagan took this not as a debate against the students, but as a debate against Robert Kennedy. I, I don't go on this program, and I don't think Governor Reagan goes on the program with saying uh, that we've never made a mistake and that we've never erred, because I think that we have. Greece, there are so many examples of America refusing to allow a people to determine for itself what government it would have. Now, are you talking about a people determining what government they'll have, or are you talking about a faction within a country that wants to take over and dictate the system to a country? Now, I disagree. I disagree. The DM regime, would you say that the DM regime was a popular one, or was it one which you imposed on a people and which the people then rebelled against? I doubt that we could make much of a case. I challenge your history. In 1954, the history of the DM regime, sir. I do, because there was a referendum taken in 1954 in which 90% of the people voted in a referendum for DM to take the position that he took. He was subsequently endorsed in two other elections, uh, a few in which they elected the General Assembly for his government that was preponderantly pro DM. Uh, they re elected him to his position. We could hardly have installed a puppet regime at a time when we had less than 700 unarmed military advisors, many of them non-commissioned officers. His answers were prepared and forceful, information-filled by most observers. He clearly wins the debate. Afterwards, there's a comment that Robert Kennedy made to his aides. Why the hell did you put me on with that guy? This is at the time in 1967 where Reagan thought that maybe he'd be running against Kennedy in the next year. But during this debate, there is one student who's representing the United States. He's a Princeton graduate named Bill Bradley. It's odd watching him now, knowing that the future basketball star and senator would go on to oppose the Reagan administration on many things, but also to work with Reagan on a signature domestic program, one that isn't often remembered
It was a strange moment. During the State of the Union Address, January 1984, President Reagan proposed a new tax overhaul. He had discussed it before in order to make the code fairer, to close loopholes. And the chamber erupts in laughter. I said something funny, he said, caught off guard. Apparently the chamber did think it was very funny. And from the level of laughter in Congress, it's not clear that it was just partisan laughter. Indeed, not only the Democrats thought that this idea that Reagan would change the tax code announced before the election would really happen. As a joke, Bob Dole goes to a group meeting of donors right after the election and jokes that he has the administration's new tax plan in his hand. He then held out a blank piece of paper to the laughs of the donors in the audience. Within two years, they would not be laughing as Reagan reached across the aisle and got something that no president since has done. Passed legislation that didn't make all in his party happy, but he did achieve some of his goals and some of theirs. The critics and people who found it humorous didn't have any idea about a conversation that Reagan had had with his then-Treasury Secretary, Don Regan, early in his administration. Regan was a multimillionaire who had worked in Merrill Lynch when he became Treasury Secretary, yet he wasn't entirely well-known, and he was someone who harbored a grudge against fat cats, despite his own wealth. He asks Reagan, when you were an actor, how much did you pay in taxes? Reagan told him. Don Regan responded, sucker. The president was a little shocked. You could have paid 50 bucks with the right lawyer and accountant. Reagan was intrigued. First of all, he got along with Reagan and his kind of gruff style and his old Irish jokes. Lou Cannon, Reagan's biographer, said that while Reagan amassed a fortune, he retained a residual Midwestern Main Street distrust of Wall Street and economic royalists, whom President Roosevelt had denounced during the Great Depression. He liked Regan's story about how he broke up Merrill Lynch's little club and made them work harder. Regan liked self-made rich people. But tax reform, what would become the tax reform of 1986, a revision of the tax code, had two powerful proponents in Washington that moved it forward. One was James Baker, the former chief of staff, and the other was Don Regan, former Treasury Secretary, now current chief of staff, After the second term, the two switched jobs. Baker wanted a cabinet official. He really wanted state, but he wasn't going to get it during the Reagan administration. He was tired of just being chief of staff. Reagan was the opposite. He was tired of being outside in the Treasury Department and wanted in the White House. So they switched jobs. Both of them, though, in these two positions, supported tax reform. Some members of Congress did, too, though not a majority. They were tired of loopholes, a few of them, and the unfairness. And they pined, some of them, even the conservatives, for simply an overall lower rate that might boost the economy instead of playing games with all these accountants. It is radical stuff. Almost like these days, you hear talk about a flat tax or maybe like a federal sales tax or something like that. But it's an, it's an idea that has some talk, but little traction And it was not easy. An early test vote of 
the president's tax reform plan got 14 Republican votes. 14 senators voted for it. This is at a time where the Republicans are controlling the Senate. Yet Regan and Baker, different times, some members of Congress would work on it. The tax code that was proposed in 1986 was still very long, but it went from 63 feet of books when laid on end to a large book of 800 pages. Part of the reason is, is because the bill had Democratic cooperation. The Democrats controlled the House at this time, the Republicans, the Senate, and both Democrats and Republicans in the Senate were leading this tax code revision. Democrats wanted the closing of loopholes. Republicans wanted a lower overall rate. A group of Democrats and Republicans met at the White House, and among them was Bill Bradley. He wanted this legislation, and he made his case to the president. Mr. President, uh, when you were an actor, the marginal tax rate was 90%, and that's why I hear you're interested in reform. I'm interested in tax reform because when I was a basketball player, I was a depreciable asset. We laughed, Bradley said later. He, the overtaxed actor, and I, the loophole for the New York Knicks. While Reagan's still Treasury Secretary, he's working silently on tax reform. It's not something immediately put into the media focus. Nowadays, whenever there's a program proposed, it goes right out to the, to the media. This was something that was kind of kept behind closed doors. When he becomes chief of staff, he and now Baker, who's at Treasury, are working on it. Here's what he said, Regan. Few stones remained unturned. Every provision of the tax code was examined on its merits. So what you have to understand, why is this different from when you hear about a tax cut or a tax increase or a budget bill being passed? No, this was an actual look at every single line of the U.S. tax code. And there's a reason why the tax code that we have today is called the 1986 tax code, because something like this hasn't been done since. Our method, Regan said, cut so deep and assaulted such entrenched elements and practices that very basic questions were brought to me for resolution. At one point, I was asked if heating, oil, and free rent to a parsonage should be counted as income. Tax it as income, I ruled. We're mugging everyone else. Why should the clergy escape? The reform bill was not easy to pass. There was various opposition in the Senate. They received Opposition from Senator Bob Packwood, a GOP senator from Oregon and the head of the Finance Committee who opposed the legislation at first, but then later came around. And with some input, with him controlling some of what the legislation was, he started to support it. And he and Bill Bradley worked together to thwart off a bunch of amendments that senators were putting on to try to poison pill the bill or to get some favoritism for their own industries. Tip O'Neill agreed with the administration to pass the bill, but required a minimum of 40 GOP votes in the House. Just 40. The Democrats had the majority. They were going to supply hundreds of votes. He looked to Reagan and the White House to supply least 40 GOP votes. Basically, Tip O'Neill's point was, we're not going to do this unless you knock us in the elections that are coming up in 1986. We want to mark this as truly bipartisan. As Tip O'Neill observed, Reagan had to drag them kicking and screaming. Indeed, it was the personal intervention 
of President Reagan that passed tax reform. The GOP, in a sense, had no appetite to do this. The resulting legislation had a good deal for both sides, but today would be viewed, I believe, as an overall moderate to liberal bent uh, because politics have changed so much. Reducing the tax burden for lower income people, closing loopholes used by higher income taxpayers to pay less. But the trade-off was overall rates being reduced, something that Reagan and most Republicans wanted. So while Republican Trent Lott would later grumble about having to whip legislation that he felt destroyed the tax incentive for second homes and investment real estate, maybe destroyed the Houston real estate market, he would complain later about that. But Bill Bradley, the Democrat, also found himself having to fight for a lower corporation tax that he wouldn't have fought for otherwise in his career. All in all, the Tax Reform Act of 1986, besides simplifying things, did the following. From 14 income brackets, there were now three, 15, 25, 35%. That's been increased since then. 78% of taxpayers got a decrease or no change. Only very core deductions, well known to most average people, and that, I mean, the mortgage, healthcare expenditure, charitable giving, IRAs, casualty losses, only those were preserved. Corporate rates were cut to 33%. Capital gains were adjusted for inflation so that you wouldn't be taxed on gains merely from inflation and taxed as any other income that's since been changed. It's hard to know the real long-term effects of the 1986 tax code reform. No president has been able to do the code reform since. Some of the provisions, like the rates, the brackets have changed, but never back to 14 brackets, never back to 50% on the high side of rates. The trend of giving a higher standard deduction rather than allowing a lot of these itemized has been preserved. The, the tax code has not been brought back to being as complicated as it was in 1985, though it has been altered and lobbyists started appearing on the Hill (laughs) the day after the legislation to start making changes to it. Here's a tip O'Neill said, Democratic Speaker of the House. From my view, it was the one bright spot of Reagan's second term. It shifted $20 from individuals being responsible to corporations. The authors of Showdown at Gucci Gulch, as well as Senator Bill Bradley, have no doubt as where the credit for the signature legislation, legislation that might not have been able to be accomplished during a Democratic presidency. Indeed, it wasn't accomplished during the two years where President Clinton had both House and Senate, the two years where President Obama had Democratic House and Senate controlled by his party. Might not have, that type of legislation might not have been accomplished at any other time. But the credit that they put goes to President Reagan for whipping his members, working the phones, making speeches to the American people on a constant basis, saluting the idea of reform that fairness in the tax code would lead to a boom in the economy. Michael Deaver was rushing out the door to the airport for an early morning flight to Germany when the phone rang and he was informed he needed to go to the White House pronto. Turn the limousine around. When he arrived, 
He was brought up to the residence, and he found President Reagan waiting for him, a pajama-clad commander-in-chief. Michael, he said, I know what you are going to do, and I'm telling you not to do it. If tax reform is the forgotten success of Reagan's early second term, Wittberg is the sometimes forgotten failure. And it started as Michael Deaver's fault. He was the one in charge of making TV appearances for President Reagan, of arranging the scenery. He was on the scouting team that went to Germany for an appearance that President Reagan was going to make. You see, Reagan had this great moment in 1984 where he appears at the 40th anniversary of D-Day. The U.S. and the French and Canadians and, and other countries that participated in that event. Deaver picks out this great scene, this great area where their speech is to be made. And it's a great moment of publicity for Reagan. There's a side effect, though, that happens in the next year. German Chancellor Helmut Kohl wanted the same type of remembrance. He's looking at that D-Day celebration. It's covered all around Europe. But Germany doesn't participate. They want a remembrance of World War II that captures Germany as well the German role in fighting, and that can finally put the war behind him and his people. And this is a major political issue for him and his Christian Democrats. And they're selling their relationship with the United States. Germany was an ally of the United States. Soviet Union's still there. Eastern Germany's still there. This is West Germany. Helmut Kohl is a major ally. We have bases there. We still do today. It's an important country right on the edge of the Cold War battle. Well, Hermit Cole asks a favor. Could Reagan help him to put World War II behind him and his nation? It would be good for Germans, but also for the Christian Democrats' political position if Reagan could appear. They have the anniversary of the war's end coming up in 1985. Could he appear and celebrate not only American, French, British, Polish war dead, but also German soldiers? Deaver goes, looks for a site, and they find the German cemetery near Wittberg. But because of the snow, or because Michael Deaver had a later confessed problem with alcoholism because of his own lack of focus, uh, his stress, his time being, uh, being five years in the White House, he's careless. And he doesn't look at the graves. If he had, he says it might have been covered up by snow, there were German SS soldiers the most partisan Nazis. These are not just people who were, who were in the, the, the army because they were fighting for their nation, for, their, for the preservation of their homeland against invasion, not just because they were drafted, not just because the government was in power and there was nothing they could do. These were SS, the most partisan Nazis among the dead in this ceremony. Now the president's going to go there and lay a wreath, essentially, on them. When news of this leaked, first in German newspapers, then in American, there was pressure to change the location. Trouble is, if they made a change, it would embarrass Cole and erase all of the political gain he was getting out of the visit. Cancellation would absolutely hurt him. Reagan had made a commitment in his mind, and he wasn't backing down. Well, now the backlash comes, and there's major uh, Jewish leaders that come and visit the White House, uh, Almost everyone is against Reagan. Almost all of the media 
Nancy Reagan begs Reagan to consider. This is one of the issues where when people say, oh, Ronald Reagan was, you know, uh, controlled by Nancy Reagan, always listen to her advice. Not true. Not true. He refuses to budge from any of these people. Michael Deaver, his other aides, Nellie Wizzle, the Holocaust survivor, author, speaker, appears at the White House. He's given a medal, and he uses his time to make it clear that the president is making a horrible mistake. But, Mr. President, if I were not to tell you also of this, I wouldn't be the person I am, and you wouldn't respect me for what I am. If I were not to tell you also of the sadness that is in my heart for what happened during the last week, and I am sure that you too are sad for the same reasons. What can I do? I belong to a traumatized generation. And to us, as to you, symbols are important. And furthermore, following our ancient tradition, and we are speaking about Jewish heritage, our tradition commands us, quote, to speak truth to power. So may I speak to you, Mr. President, with respect and admiration of the events that happened. We have met four or five times. And each time I came away enriched. For I know of your commitment to humanity. And therefore I am convinced, as you have told us earlier when we spoke, that you were not aware of the presence of SS graves in the Bitburg Cemetery. Of course you didn't know. But now we all are aware. May I, Mr. President, if it's possible at all, implore you to do something else, to find a way, find another way, another site. That place, Mr. President, is not your place. Donald Reagan, his chief of staff and good friend, uh, probably over a few Irish jokes, you know, says, although I admired his courage, I had the obligation to play devil's advocate here. The original purpose of the visit, reconciliation, has been lost in the storm of protest. According to Reagan, Reagan's arguments seemed to demonstrate how much he viewed his role as the anti-Carter, a president that wouldn't facilitate, a president that wouldn't turn and run every time something happened. No, Don, I'm not going to change. Indeed, he stops Mike Deaver when he even gets a hint. The Mike Deaver's going over Germany ostensibly just to arrange the scenery for the trip, to deal with the Germans. He knows that Deaver's probably going to try to ask Cole's government to talk Reagan out of it, to pick another site. Please. Help out, Arch Commander-in-Chief. Mike, I know what you're going to do, and I don't want you to do it. This is my decision and my choice to make. There's another attempt, this time from Bud McFarlane, National Security Advisor. He sends a cable to Germany that basically says, well, we agree to Wittberg, but it is causing political problems for us. Reagan views this and is furious. No, he's not changing his mind. There's no reason to send any signals to Germany. The newspapers continue to be unkind. Finally, there's one more chance to get out of this. General Matthew Ridgway, who led the 82nd Airborne into Nazi Germany during the war. He says, my commander-in-chief's in trouble. He needs my help. President Reagan, I will go and I will lay the wreath at Wittberg. You don't have to. This is a tremendous gesture from the general. 
Even here, Reagan says, thank you, General, but this is something that I must do. This is a commitment I made. He does agree that Ridgeway can come with him and lay a wreath on the graves as well. Now, there's things going on behind the scene that I'm not sure people are aware of, you know, how important the relationship with Germany was during the Cold War, and also specifically with the Christian Democratic Party in Germany versus the Socialist Party that might take over if uh, coal is not elected. I mean, Europe is not necessarily friendly to an anti-Soviet policy at this time. In fact, there's a big movement, even pre-Gorbachev, to try to reach out more and work with them as another country in Europe. The Italians are kind of on board with that. The French are closer on that. He's got Thatcher and he's got Cole on his side. Kissinger and Richard Nixon call Ronald Reagan. This is something we know now, wouldn't have been widely publicized then, that he's doing a good thing by backing up Cole. And it's going to be good overall for the U.S.-German relationship. And so Reagan will not be stopped. And on the anniversary of the end of the war with Germany in World War II, he appears at Wittberg and makes his speech. Wittberg was a disaster. It lost a lot of the moral high ground, and Reagan lost on this move. Yet it illustrates the tenacity that he had when he believed the cause was right, and he couldn't be shook. Here's what Luke Cannon said. Wittberg left scars that did not heal. Reagan would never again capture the moral high ground he had sacrificed at Wittberg. He never again gained the trust absolutely of the Jewish community. Remember that this was a candidate, Reagan, that in 1980 got the highest amount of a GOP, 39% of the uh, Jewish American vote in the election, and pretty well in 1984 too. This wasn't a community that he was, you know, against in a major way. There was a lot of support for Reagan. Indeed, Wittberg blew the second term in a sense. It set up 1986, a disastrous midterm where Republicans lost the Senate that they thought they were going to hold for a long time. After not having it for 40 years, it would turn out they would only have it for six. It set up Iran-Contra in a sense. It uh, was a tough ride for the GOP in 1988, really, until you get to the point where Dukakis is named as the nominee in the 1988 election, that's really a tough ride where most people viewing it are saying, you know, there's a lot of Democrats running for president because they're probably going to win after Reagan's second term. And that was partially set up by beginning with Wittberg and a series of other incidents. And if we look at it now with fresh eyes, it cannot be the worst of those motives that people were feeling then. Reagan had no goal to sanitize the Nazi regime, to get distance in the Holocaust, or to attack the Jewish American community. But he did stir up thoughts of that, and he stirred up those criticisms. And for his worst political opponents, they thought they were real. The reality was a bad episode where his strength, his feeling about his abilities that he could in one moment turn things around with a speech, were badly utilized. The speech at Wittberg actually was pretty good, but the overall setup was terrible. His virulent anti-communism and desire to help an ally led him to fail to consider the power of the presidency in perhaps inching towards supporting totalitarianism, the very totalitarianism that he was fighting. And in wishing in wishing single-handedly as a president to end the memory, the bad memories of World War II, it was probably too early in 1985 to do that. 
to end the U.S.-Germany friction, he moved too early. The country was not ready in 1985. Even the German press thought that they maybe were not ready. It nonetheless remains an example. There are two other areas of reform of controversial policies that can be associated with Reagan that likely would have failed if they didn't have his presidential support. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act, pushed primarily by GOP Senator Al Simpson of Wyoming, gave immigrants who came in before 1982 amnesty if they had entered the country illegally. It's about 3 million people they estimated, and a little over 2.5 took advantage of the policy. Reagan knew that it was not right for people to be abused, Simpson said, 20 years later. And he felt that, as Simpson did as well, illegal immigrants were being abused by employers with no rights. As Reagan himself said in a TV debate in 1984, I believe in amnesty for those who have put down roots and lived here, even though some have entered illegally. There could be little doubt on that issue, on immigration, that Reagan would differ a great deal from the policy of the majority of the GOP right now. No, a couple of notes. We are looking back in hindsight and we're talking about a president that's no longer with us. Would he look at the current situation and still agree? We don't know. We also know that some of the reason for the immigration policy is connected to his Central American policy and the presence and the strong presence he felt, which may have been stronger than existed on the ground, of Soviets in the Central America, of communist governments entering Central and South America, and that the immigration policy would be needed for refugees that might be coming up. So it's a broad look. But there is no other way to dispute it that during the time that Reagan was president, he was pro-immigration and allowed a policy that he directly called amnesty. This is not one of those hidden things. That's kind of known in the media, and there's a, it's out there a little more. On Social Security, less so. I mean, President Reagan basically, by appointing a commission, the Greenspan Commission, saved the Social Security program. 
for many generations and worked in a bipartisan manner in 1983. The commission had Republicans and Democrats on it. Tip O'Neill was behind the commission as well as President Reagan. They made a decision to increase payroll taxes on lower and middle class workers, certainly, to do so for 30 years and to create a trust fund that could be used against future insolvency of the program. Now, in effect, they created a $3 trillion trust fund. The problem is that money has been spent, and it's merely an IOU fund at this point. But the issue isn't looked at at all, really. Reagan never gets much credit for enhancing Social Security. Maybe it was seen as a bit of an issue that he was looking just to dodge and get rid of as an issue. They're constantly coming after him on Social Security. They feel his party felt like in 1982 they lost the midterms because of Social Security, so they wanted to kind of get rid of the issue. So that might have been the motives rather than just being politically noble. He also doesn't get enough blame, nor do Democrats at the time in Congress, for spending, for preventing the spending of that Social Security trust fund. And it's not often noted that Reagan raised taxes, that Reagan raised taxes in any form, and the Greenspan Commission was one of several tax increases passed during the during a presidency where mostly tax cutting was advocated. It should be part of his legacy and considered, and that's why we consider it here. We talked about the kind of strength that Reagan would have needed for tax reform, for immigration reform, for social security reform, and even in Wittberg, there it might have been an ill-considered use of that strength. But there was this definite stubborn strength, tenacity to Reagan. When he made a call, he wasn't moving. He didn't move. And the voices of criticism came to be considered like small little voices compared to the role that he was playing in the decision he had made. That's admired today by conservatives, but it's probably forgotten by liberals and really moderates really moderates, because I think what you had in the Reagan administration was not so much ever really liberal policies, but moderate policies done sometimes, like that tax reform, where that same tenacity and stubbornness benefited. But in one area, where his attention did not focus, where they never got to the benefit of his making a decision or making a call, where maybe his inadequate staff management didn't allow it to, his administration deserves the black eye that it gets. But it's not a problem that originated in his administration, though it certainly got worse during it. And of course, we're talking about savings and loans. Savings and loans, thrift banks, SNLs, whatever you want to call them, came from a good place. The idea of small local banks that could help workers become homeowners. They could help small business people to create a, a, a small business in a town. The kind of local banks that didn't have to rely on large federal concerns to raise money. That during the 19th and 20th century made it possible for America to be built because there wouldn't have been the kind of easy credit mechanisms otherwise. 
if there weren't local entities funding some of it. Buildings and loans banks. They had a great history in the 19th century, and up until World War II, they were playing a good role, providing servicemen with lower-interest loans they couldn't get elsewhere. Problems started in the 1960s, 70s, when interest rates start to increase, and these small banks can't compete. And with the deposits they have just from local sources, they can't compete. So the Carter administration comes to help. First, granting the power of savings and loans to do other types of loans, like not just taking a mortgage on an existing home property that's already been built, but actually financing the acquisition of land and the construction. Then the FHLBB, the the body that regulates these smaller banks, increases the amount that the federal government will insure them from 40000 to 100000 So you're seeing already in the 70s an increase in taxpayer liability to savings and loans, and it's done before Reagan takes office. Carter takes another step. SNLs are now allowed to offer CDs and to go hunting for deposits through brokers who are national instead of just looking for local sources. Investors who are looking to invest 100 k say, from New York or Philadelphia or Los Angeles, anywhere, might start now to look out for a bank in Kansas or Texas or Wyoming. Why not? It's all about the rate, and a broker can arrange it for them. But these investors are not investing in the local community, really. They don't have an interest in the local community. To get this money, you know, banks are competing. they got to pay 6 to 10% interest in order to get the depositors' money. How do they do it? They're forced to take riskier and riskier loans. This all happens before 1981. But when Ronald Reagan comes into office, he is an SNL friend. Many of the savings and loans are in western states, California, Texas, his states that he won. Congress and Reagan's cabinet, including Treasury Secretary Don Regan, liked SNLs, thought they were a growth engine for the economy that needed to be deregulated. During his presidency, 500 new savings and loans are awarded charters. Now, we talked about some of the deregulations under Carter maybe a modest deregulation, but even a little risky. It expands under the Reagan administration. SNLs can now make commercial loans, consumer loans, just like banks can. But this is not in their expertise, and these are riskier loans. How do you assess a business? That's something a top national bank might be more aware of. But for a savings and loan, a local, it's difficult. There's plenty of conflicts of interest, because who owns the savings and loans in these banks, in, the, in these areas? Well, local business people. So it's going to be a very questionable conflict of interest between who's running the bank and who's borrowing money from the bank and when they're required to pay and what kind of discipline they have. The highly publicized case you had to come from Vice President Bush's son, Neil Bush, Silverado Savings in Colorado, where essentially he's a director of the bank and he has two business partners that get a loan from the bank, but they're business partners of his. And this, there was a lot of attention because of who he was, but this happens all across the country. They reduce the amount of assets that they have to have in real deposits uh, from 5% to 3%. Now, it doesn't sound like much, but also part of their assets can be these treasury notes that are issued to them that are not liquid immediately. So they're not real hard assets. Plus, Bank examiners are few, 
underpaid, never increased during the Reagan administration. SNLs can eventually use loans as income. So the Treasury Department decides that, let's say you lend a million out. You're going to earn 240000 in interest over the life of the loan. In your first year of, the, of reporting that loan, you can report that 240000 as income to make your bank look even more solvent. One more thing. They reduce the requirement that shareholders of the bank be local. There's still some requirement for local, but they reduce the amount of shareholders that need to be local. So in all of these steps, you're losing the counters to risk. And one of those strong counters that always were there for the savings and loans was the involvement in the community and the knowledge of the community. And you're taking that away. Even as of 1983, just two years into the Reagan administration, 35% of savings and loans are considered insolvent even by the loose Reagan Treasury Department rules. And it's in that year when an unknown assistant of Edwin Meese, attorney general, a Reagan supporter who left the administration to work at a savings and loan, comes back to become in charge of regulating. His name is Edwin Gray. The industry's delighted about this, the savings and loan industry. He's a guy who worked in one of them, and so he's going to be easy on the industry. It's also Republicans and Democrats in the House who like this. I mean, Speaker Jim Wright, who is now, um, who later is going to replace Tip O'Neill, is very involved with one of his local savings and loans. And most of the Democrats in Congress are supportive of savings and loans, just like the administration is. It's kind of like a bi- a very bad issue, but a bipartisan bad issue. They're all delighted, though, because Gray's going to keep an easy hand and keep the growth going. But as Gray said, they didn't know me well, and I actually didn't know myself well. Gray starts sending memos as he sees data. This is crazy. The savings and loans are out of control. He says that in 1983, for $9.5 billion, we could fix this now and enact new regulations to stop this. They don't listen. By 1986, when energy prices are down and a lot of commercial loans become invalid... Reagan's tax reform, which we talked about earlier, good in many ways, but hits real estate investing hard by limiting how much investors could write off. This hurts the building and real estate loans that so many savings and loans have. Gray wants to see Reagan. He's always blocked. He wants to hire new bank examiners. He's blocked. The administration is angry at him. So is the Democratic Congress. He's hearing from Republican friends of him that the president doesn't like him. And Gray and Reagan don't meet on this issue. Gray keeps pushing for more controls. He even finds a way to hire bank examiners of his own out of his budget and starts assessing some of these savings and loans. By 1987, he is not renominated when his appointment comes up and President Reagan replaces him with a savings and loan loyalist. We know that this story does not end well. And by the time you get to 1989, after the Reagan administration is over, this problem is well diagnosed. They see that Gray was right. And a problem that could have been solved for $10 billion now in the end costs taxpayers $120 billion. After forming a resolution trust corporation, after shutting down over 800 
of the savings and loans banks and with costs going all the way into 1995. Now, $120 billion in today's time where we have trillions, you know, doesn't sound like a lot. If you convert it, it's a little over $200 billion just in terms of CPI and inflation and the like. If you compare it to the economy at the time, we probably are thinking something about more like 350 to $400 billion, maybe about half of what TARP cost. But it's at a time when such a program had not been undertaken. This is a large amount of expenditure. And, and there's another factor to consider that all through the 1980s, and we discussed in a previous episode of how well the economy was rocketing through the, through the 80s after the initial recession, part of that is fueled by what can really be considered kind of a phantom money that runs through the entire economy but ends and ends hard. And the payment for it, the $120 million, a lot of that is coming from someone else's administration, from the Bush administration, from the Clinton administration, at a time when it's harder to pay for it. Because after 1990, there's a recession. And that recession, too, you never know what causes a recession. And 1990 had a lot to do with energy and other things companies reorganizing. But there is that factor, too, that you no longer had the fuel of these savings and loans, and so many of them were shutting down in the late 80s, early 90s. And so the cost for some of this Reagan administration deregulation program, a significant deregulation target of his administration, came later. Reagan deserves credit for many domestic achievements of his administration, for many foreign policy achievements of his administration. Those will be debated and discussed for some time. Savings and loan and the policy around savings and loan would not appear to be one of them. And I think it's a place where people could be rightly critical. I want to thank you for listening. This is part seven. The website... It's www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Part 8 is going to go into Iran-Contra. Part 9, the Cold War. Part 10, we'll probably, rack, we'll probably wrap it up. I know there's been some talk. Why don't you have a dozen of the dozen Ronald Reagans? Well, <laughs> the dozen Ronald Reagans refers to the different character traits of, of Ronald Reagan. We don't need to have a dozen episodes. It might be too much. And we've got so many other topics to talk about. I want to remind you about the five biggest fibs in American politics. That is my book. It is on Amazon.com right now. Thank you so much, those who have purchased a copy of it. It's it's a big morale booster for me to see uh, so many sales of it. At one point, we were down. We were up to 155 ranking on the politics and elections books in Amazon.com. That's not too bad, right? And... Uh, if you have purchased a book, I wouldn't mind if you go on Amazon and, and do a review of it. That helps a lot. I want to put on your radar that pretty soon we're going to be starting the premium podcast. So it'll be an opportunity to both support the show and get more content as well. And website, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs> 
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.